If you would, join me in prayer one more time before I begin preaching this morning. Our God and our Father of our Lord Christ, we come this morning, and I pray that our reason for being here would be what we just sang, that we would be here to adore Christ. Lord, if anything is glorified, if anything is seen more clearly, if anything is to be worshiped this morning, I pray that it would be Christ. So, Father, would you help me get out of the way? Would you reveal yourself through your word? Would you help us adore your Son, whom you've glorified, Jesus Christ? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to be continuing in this journey that we've started through the covenants. We're not hitting all of the covenants, but we're hitting the major high points for sure. If you want to turn in your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 19, we're going to end up there. That's going to be what we're looking at to see this next major covenant. But uh, if you don't remember, maybe you weren't here last week, Pastor Tim brought us to the man of Abraham, which you've probably heard of before, Abraham. God called him, and God made a covenant with Abraham. And he made his covenant in Genesis chapters 12, 15, and 17. He elaborated on it each time. But we see something in God's covenant with Abraham. When he's speaking to Abraham, he gives us a little bit of a preview of what is coming next for the people of God of where they are going to go, of what is going to happen to them. Kind of like if you're, if you're at the movies and you're one of those really dedicated people that sits through all of the credits just to see, yeah, one person's at least nodding their head, just to see if, if there is a scene of what's going to happen in the next movie, of what's going to happen in the sequel, right? The most disappointing thing ever is when there is no scene, right? And you, you waste your time. I, that's why I don't stay for those because most of the time there is not a scene, Right? But sometimes there is. And what we see in Genesis chapter 15 is a scene, a little snippet of what is going to happen for God's people. God's made this promise to Abraham. I'm going to turn you into a great nation. It's going to number like the stars of the heavens, like the sand of the seashore. You'll be a great nation. You'll have a land. And it's through you that I'm going to bless all the nations. So they have this promise. But we have a snippet of what is to come. In Genesis 15... Verses 13 through 14, God tells Abraham this. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions." If you're familiar with the Old Testament story much at all, or if you're one of the children that's been in Sunday school for the last several months, you'll be familiar with what's being talked about. This is talking about God's people in slavery to the Egyptians. This is the Exodus story that he's referencing that's going to happen. And we've been studying all through the, the, from the little kids to the sixth grade Sunday school that this is what's happening to God's people. God brings them into Egypt to save them through his servant Joseph, who's providing for God's people during a, a huge famine that's happening. It's the only way that they're going to be saved. And so they're, they're in Egypt. They're not in the promised land that God has promised to Abraham. They're in Egypt, but through that, God has saved them. 
But Joseph dies. And at the end of the book of Genesis, we see this prophecy that God has made to Abraham come true because they are in Egypt and they stay there. And eventually Joseph, the second in command in Egypt, who is helping God's people and providing for their needs, he can't provide for them forever. He dies. And new kings come in Egypt. And we eventually see in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, it says that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And because he didn't know Joseph, he did not look favorably on the people of Israel. And they were enslaved. And it says here, we're told, God tells Abraham they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. 400 years is a long time. It's the time, it's the amount of time that we generally think of that we see between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. There's this span of 400 years of silence where God has sent his people into exile and they don't hear from him for 400 years. They're occupied. They wonder whatever happened to these great promises that God has made to us. And then we have the advent of Christ the coming of Jesus, the breaking of the silence. In the same way, what you have in this Exodus story are God's people enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and God is silent. You begin to wonder if you're an Israelite, did God really mean that promise that he made to our father Abraham? Is he really going to make us into a great nation and give us land and bless all the world through us? We feel like the least blessed people of all time. They call out to God. And then finally, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, the silence breaks. God enters in again. Verse 23, during those days, many, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard they're groaning. And now listen to this. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew their plight. God knew their suffering. God knew their need. And God remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham. And in keeping with that covenant that God made, what did he do? If you know the story, he appoints his servant Moses and sends Moses to save the people of Israel. He goes to Pharaoh boldly, tells them that he needs to let the people of God go so that they can be released to be with their God, to worship their God. Pharaoh's heart is hard, and he says no. And so God judges Egypt with 10 plagues, and he shows the might of his power and his, his abundant ability to save his people from any tyrant that would want to oppress them. And so he saves them. He brings them out of Egypt and leads them into the wilderness. And it is in the wilderness that God brings them to a very specific place. He brings them to a mountain called Sinai. And it's at this mountain where God and his people are gathered together and God says, time for us to make a covenant together. I've made a covenant with your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Now it's time for us to make a covenant together. If you are to be my people and if I am to be your God, we need to set boundaries, parameters for how this relationship between us is going to work out. And we see the beginning of this covenant in Exodus 19, where I had you turn in your Bibles. And we see this covenant is essentially established in a very simple phrase, if you obey, you will continue to be my people. You, I've saved you from Egypt because you are my people, because I've made a promise to Abraham. You are my people, but for you to continue to be my people, for you to continue to live in fellowship with me, you must obey, and you must live within the parameters that I set for you. So Exodus chapter 19, look with me at verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God tells Moses, Moses, if the people want to continue to be my people, this is what's on the table. If they obey me, they will be my people. And the response of God's people at that time was yes. Very next verse, verse 7, we see their response. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So there's kind of a preliminary conversation that Israel and God have with one another and says, God, God says to them, if you want to enter into this covenant, know that this is what the covenant will include. It will include stipulations. It will require your obedience to follow after me as your God. And then if you do that, you will be my people. Those are the stipulations that are put. People say, no problem, God. You got it. You've saved us from Egypt. We saw everything you did. We will follow you faithfully. And so God continues, and he begins to lay out what these stipulations are of the covenant. That's what happens right here, the very next chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, a passage of Scripture that no doubt, even if you haven't been to church very long, you've probably heard of, the Ten Commandments. But the covenant that God makes with Israel is much more than chapter 20. It's much more than the Ten Commandments. In fact, studying for this and preparing to, to teach you about the, this covenant that we call the Mosaic Covenant or the covenant that's at Sinai that's made here at this mountain was really challenging because whereas you have God's covenant with Abraham, we looked at like three chapters of Scripture. We looked at you know those three chapters there in Genesis, and it's pretty simply laid out for how God makes this covenant with this man. But here, we have the next several chapters of the book of Exodus laying out these basic rules and laws that God has for his people. But then, even then, later on in the rest of the book of Exodus, what you have is God provides instructions to his people to, for building a tent that our Sunday school just learned about that like two weeks ago, building this tent called the tabernacle, which is where the presence of God was supposed to dwell, but it was also where God's people were able to come to him, and it was the meeting point 
between God and his people. It was the place where they were able to have fellowship with him, but there was so much symbolism wrapped up in everything that was there and what it all meant. There was very specific instructions that they were to follow to be able to do that. But it even goes beyond the book of Exodus. It goes into Leviticus. And all through Leviticus, what you see is sacrifices, uh, festivals to celebrate. You see uh, outlines of, of how the priests were supposed to conduct themselves and what they were supposed to do, an entire book. And then you have even a little bit more of that in the book of Numbers. And then it goes into the next book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, which is essentially just a rehashing of everything that was there. And it's kind of like a summary, and they called that the book of the law, the book of the covenant that they had. And so you don't just have three chapters. You have like four books of the Bible that make up what we call the Mosaic Covenant. And contained within all of it are these laws, stipulations, festivals, blueprints for building a tabernacle, all of these things are wrapped up into this law that they were to follow. But all of that was absolutely necessary. It was necessary for God's people to know all of these things and to live them out and to live in obedience to those things if they wanted any shot of having a relationship with the God that rescued them from Egypt. That's what the Mosaic Covenant was all about. The Mosaic Covenant established how an ongoing relationship with God was possible, how it was possible. And so God gives them all of these stipulations. If you turn over to Exodus chapter 24, just as in the same way that there was an official ceremony to put the covenant in place that God had with Abraham. There is an official ceremony that we have here in Exodus 24. The ceremony that you had with Abraham, if you remember, was there were animals that were sacrificed, their bodies torn in two, one placed over here, one placed over there, and God walked through, God went through these animals as if to say, if I break this covenant, let me be like these animals. Let me be judged. Let me be torn in two. And we see, in the same way, a formal ceremony that's done to make this covenant official with God's people. So Exodus chapter 24, look at verses 3 through 8. It says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Again, their commitment to be obedient and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So you have, again, an official type of ceremony between God and his people, but this one's a little different, isn't it? 
than the covenant that's made between Abraham and God. In this covenant, it's not just God who invokes the curse. The people do as well. Half of the blood is, it says, thrown against the altar. The altar represents God's part to play in this covenant. But the rest of the blood, it says, was thrown on the people, which sounds really nasty, right? And a lot of commentators think that those 12 pillars that were brought up, that the blood was actually tossed against those pillars, that it was the pillars that represented the people of Israel that the blood was, was thrown on. But what it means is that the people had just as much a part in this covenant as God did. They were involved in this one. This type of ceremony and what this is talking about, scholars will talk about how it's almost as if what's happening in this moment is synonymous with a type of marriage ceremony where you have the people and God making vows to one another. And that's a similar difference as we see here. It's like you think about the relationship that maybe you have with your children. That's a one-sided relationship most of the time, especially if your children are young. It's a one-sided relationship in that you as a parent have essentially promised by having that child to love them, to care for them, to provide for them, to do whatever is needed for them because you are their parent and for no other reason than the fact that they are your child. That sounds very much like the covenant that God made with Abraham. God made the promise. Nothing but was on Abraham but to receive the promise that was given him. But this covenant is much more like a covenant of marriage where you have a husband and a wife who come together and who makes vows in a marriage? Is it just the husband? No, the wife does too. They both have a part to play in this covenant. And so it's in that way we see this covenant is very different Israel has a part to play. Multiple times, you heard the passages I read, they vowed to be obedient to the Lord, to follow his statutes, to follow his rules. And so it's probably not gonna be a surprise to you what I say next. It didn't work out very well. They weren't able to do it. You see, the terms of this covenant were essentially set up as an exchange between God's people and God. And if they were to live obediently following his commands, he would continue to be their God. They would continue to be his people. He would continue to bless them. They would enjoy this position that they had as the people of God. But the problem is they found out very quickly, and they found out over and over and over again, they couldn't do it. Time after time after time, they failed. In fact, maybe you're not familiar with this story. Moses goes back up onto the mountain to actually get the law, to get the full instructions that he's going to receive after we see this in, in Exodus 24. He goes back up. He, he gets all these instructions. Before he comes down from the mountain, the people of God have already abandoned him, and they have made a golden calf out of their earrings, and they are worshiping it. They've already broken the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. They can't even last a matter of days before they break this covenant, the very first command that they are given. They worship a different God. They set up something else to be their God. And they didn't just fail that one time. They failed continually, over and over and over again. They worship false gods 
They failed to trust God and his promises. They had seen his mighty salvation through, through everything that happened in Egypt, yet they don't have enough faith that God will actually bring them into the promised land. And they rebel and they tell lies and they say, God cannot save us from this. So he makes them wander through the wilderness. Eventually they get in. Eventually kings draw them away from the Lord over and over and over again. The people, even though they swore obedience, they cannot be obedient. And that becomes more and more clear as time goes on. It's because of their disobedience, because of their sin, God gave them these ritual sacrifices that were to be done many times throughout the year, sometimes depending on the people themselves and what they did. Sacrifices where they would take animals to the tabernacle, to the temple, where their blood would be shed. These animals would be slaughtered, and they would be given as offerings to the Lord, not to please the Lord, but to pay for their sin. Because as they came to meet with God, sin cannot meet with the holy God and not be judged and not be destroyed. And so that God would actually be able to be among his people and that his people would actually be able to come to him, he had to institute a system of sacrifices where blood was shed. And they did these. They brought these sacrifices. They fulfilled that. But there's a problem even with that. The problem with that whole system was that it didn't matter how many sacrifices they were able to bring to the tabernacle. It didn't matter how many sacrifices they were able to make for their sin they were not changed. As many times as they might come and bring that sacrifice and say, I won't do it again. Next week, bring another sacrifice. The very next year, got to have the Day of Atonement again because all the people have still sinned. This has to keep happening and happening and happening. It's a continual problem. The issue goes unresolved because no matter how many sacrifices they made, their hearts were still darkened. Their hearts before God were still sinful. God makes very clear throughout the scriptures, he doesn't want sacrifices. He doesn't want a people who establish a relationship with him that goes something like this. I'll just live however I want and I'll bring a sacrifice to the temple later to cover it up. God doesn't want people like that. He doesn't want that to be how his people relate to him. God wants people who actually love him, who actually love his law, who actually delight in being obedient to him. That is what he desires. That is what he wants. David said in Psalm 51, verses 16 through 17, for you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. What God wanted were people that genuinely obeyed him and loved him and delighted in his law. But the people could not be that. The Mosaic Covenant was established a workable relationship with God. But what becomes so clear as the covenant unfolds and as his people live within this covenant with him, what becomes absolutely clear is that a workable relationship with God while you remain unchanged is not possible. It's not possible. You can't do it. 
the people of Israel eventually realized though they had been set free from their slavery in Egypt, they were still enslaved to yet something greater, their sin. They could not escape. They could not stop. They could not provide what they needed to be able to live in a relationship with a holy God. Eventually, they are sent into exile because they are enslaved to their sin. You cannot have a relationship with God that is built on a system of exchange where you do this and God does this in return because that type of system only produces one result for you, judgment, because that is the only thing you can do. You, as the Israelites were, are enslaved to your sin. I think many people, despite our knowledge of Israel and despite what we see in the evidence that is before us, I think many people in our world today, we still define our relationship with God as if it is a system of an exchange where we do our part, God does his part. And that's how we do this. That's how this relationship with God works. It might not be in the system of, you might not be taking goats, you know, going and getting a goat and sacrificing it at some altar somewhere but you still approach your relationship to God with this way, maybe. I have four examples that I'd want to point out. I see these often, people approaching God in this way. They define their relationship with God as a system of exchange by saying that their God is a God with benefits, which means that certain good blessings come to me because I follow God, because I have generally positive thoughts about who God is. Because I try to be a Christian, essentially living a moral life brings good things to me. It makes me happy to be a moral person. Or it could be even the idea that if I make good decisions, God will make good things happen. If I am generally obedient to him, he will bless me. That's basically the Old Covenant 101, what I just looked at. Kind of like karma. The idea that you get out of it what you put into it. If I put good into the system, the system will produce good for me. And that's the way you approach life, and you think that life works that way. But let me tell you something. If karma is real, and what you put into it is what you get out of it, let me just ask you to be very honest with yourself for a second. Do you honestly believe that you put more good in than you put bad in? Do you honestly think that if you were to take all of your good works and all of your bad works and put them on a scale that your good would outweigh your bad? You're confident of that? I'm not confident of that for myself. I'm actually pretty confident that I've probably had more negative thoughts and done more sinful things than I have good things. If karma, we know for a fact that karma can't be real. If what you put in is what you get out, that makes no sense of the many wicked people in our world that seem to be flourishing. It makes no sense of the many righteous and good people that you know in your life that tend to suffer the most. So no, that, that can't be the answer. Some people approach God, and this is the second example, they approach God as if he's the self-help God, the God that helps us. In other words, the God that brings out the best in me. You recognize maybe that you have some faults, you have some flaws, 
you need help in some areas of your life. And church and God is a system that you can go to, that, that you can use to engage and become a better person, to address those areas of sin in your life. God brings out the best in you, putting yourself in this positive environment with wholesome teaching and people around you that you know are on the straight and narrow path. Well, that is all that you need to yourself get on the straight and narrow path. That's what you need to become the better person that you should be. You approach God as if he is what helps you address the problems that you have with anger, pride, jealousy, lust. You're pretty good on everything else, but you just need a little boost to get you through. That's how you view church. Church is like a seminar that you would go to, to be encouraged and built up and and pumped up and ready for the week ahead so that you can do the things that you should be doing. The problem with that is this. Maybe you've experienced this. It doesn't matter how positive of an environment you put yourself in. It doesn't matter how good of teaching you listen to. It doesn't matter how many good people you surround yourself with you still end up struggling with the same old sins. You still end up making the same old mistakes, the same old faults, the same old flaws continue to come up. And what you realize is this, your environment is not your problem. The problem is you. There's something in you that's broken. It's not the people around you. And that system doesn't work. Or maybe you could be like this third group of people that have the God that is the the do my best God. Essentially, the, the idea behind this is that if you do your best, God will do the rest. If you simply try and you put forward your best effort to be the most moral person that you could be, God will eventually overlook all of your faults. He will overlook all of your failures because after all, you tried. It's kind of like that teacher that we all loved in school, that graded us not on accuracy, but on effort, right? You all know what I'm talking about, those of you that are in school. You like being graded on your effort, not your accuracy. You like knowing that so long as God knows that I'm trying, he doesn't actually care about how closely I follow his law. He doesn't care about how faithful I actually am to him, as long as I try a little. Basically, If I show up, I'll get the grade, right? But there's a big problem with this. The problem with that is that if you actually were to open your Bible and see what the Bible says about God's expectation and about how God deals with those who fail to meet those expectations, to to actually deal with those people who fail and who fall, you see very quickly that God actually does care very much about accuracy. He cares very much about it. In fact, it doesn't even make sense that if this is the way that God operated, it wouldn't make sense that there would be judgment for anybody. Because as much as we would like to think the opposite is true, I guarantee you there are not very many people in our world who are living their life actively trying to be the worst person that they could possibly be. They're not trying to do that. Every person alive thinks they're trying to be a good person. Every person alive thinks that they are trying as hard as they can to live a life that is pleasing to God. And if this were true, if we have a do, it my, do my best God, then God would not judge anybody. But we see from the testimony of Scripture, that's not true. That is not true. 
God does judge those who sin. And so if that's how you define your relationship with God, God, I'm going to do my best, and you're just going to have to cover the rest. That's not how God operates. He doesn't come to us on those terms. The last example I would present to you is one that I encounter a lot as a pastor. And being in church often, I see this many times. It's the crisis God The God that we turn to in crisis, and it could be any number of crises. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe your kids are going completely the wrong direction. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you are spiraling in this uncontrollable bout of depression, and you're even suicidal. And you're just in a place where you're, who you are, the core of your being, is shaken and you don't know what to do. And you come to God because you think, I don't know how I'm going to get through this without God. Well, let me just encourage you. That's a very good thing to think. God is the one we turn to in crisis. God is the one we trust in when all of our other avenues of hope have been extinguished. That might be the point of the crisis to get you to turn back to your God. But I want to be very clear, that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this crisis God. Still talking about a system of exchange that is set up between you and God, where you say, I'm in the midst of this crisis. I am in the midst of this horrible dilemma. Maybe if I turn to God, the crisis will be over. Maybe if I start going to church, my wife won't divorce me. Maybe if I bring my kids around other Christians, it'll set them on the straight path, and and God will do that. Maybe if I start praying more often to God, then I'll get a better job than the one that I just lost. Maybe if I just start reading my Bible every single day, my depression will go away. Do you see how that's different? Do you see how that's, yeah, you're turning to God in a crisis, but you're still approaching God as if this is an exchange that happens As if it's some special formula that all you have to do is do these couple things and then God will solve all your problems. That's not the God that we're presented with in Scripture. And if that's the God that we serve, that's actually not good news at all. Because if you've ever been there, maybe you've also found that this is generally true. The crisis that motivated you to turn to God is not generally strong enough to keep you turned to God. But eventually, you lose focus Eventually, the, the hard feelings, eventually the, the pain of the situation gets a little less. And when that happens, you, you begin to veer away from the Lord again, at least until the next crisis. We find the same problem that we have is the problem that the Israelites had. We approach God as if this is some kind of exchange between God and us We do our part, God does his part, and we find the same thing to be true. We can't do it. We can't stay motivated enough. We can't stay committed enough. We can't do our part. Even if we are the ones that set the standards of what our part is, we can't meet our own standards, can we? We fail all the time. And we eventually end up in the same place that the Apostle Paul ends up at the end of Romans chapter 7. He says this in verse 21. Maybe you can resonate with this. 
He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This battle that goes on inside of you, a burning desire to follow after God, a burning desire to be obedient to God, to be his people, and for him to be your God, yet another law within you that you are enslaved to, to the point where you are driven to the same place Paul is in verse 24. You say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You eventually realize this system of exchange that you've set up with God that is partly dependent on you and what you are able to do, when you realize that you actually have no ability to do any of that, and you realize that you need someone else to redeem you from this slavery that you are in, in the same way God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. You need that same redemption. The Mosaic Covenant, to put it bluntly, is a failed covenant. It's not a failed covenant because God failed. God kept every part. It's a failed covenant because we failed to keep the covenant. We fail to live in the expectations that is required of perfect holiness and obedience to God. We cannot do that. We need a new one. We need a better one. If we have any hope at all of having a workable relationship with God, we've got to have a new covenant. We've got to have a covenant that not only provides us the ability to bring a sacrifice for sins, but changes our hearts and changes who we are as we stand before God so that we actually can be his people and so that he can be our God. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 8, picks up on this failure of the old covenant to be what it needs to be. But also, he quotes Jeremiah, the prophet, when Jeremiah is promising a new day with a new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, he says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there have been no occasion to look for a second. So he acknowledges that there is fault in this old Mosaic covenant. It does not fulfill what it needs to do. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. There is that wonderful phrase that we see over and over and over again when you're thinking about the covenants that you see all throughout Scripture. The whole point of it is so that God can be our God and so that we can be his people, so that we can actually be united to him as we were created and designed to be. That's the whole point of all these covenants. And that time is coming in this new covenant. 
And they shall not teach each one his neighbor. This is verse 11. And each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The problem of sin will be dealt with in the new covenant. Finally and fully, God will be able to have mercy on his people, and we will all know the Lord. His law is not written on two tablets of stone that a man carries down from the mountain, but God uses his very finger to inscribe them into your heart. And he changes who you are as a person so that you can live in a covenant relationship with him. That's the covenant that we need. What is this covenant? Where is it coming from? When is it coming? How are we supposed to have access to this covenant? There's a passage in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, that you've probably heard before. We read it often during services where we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Maybe it'll have some new significance for you now, thinking about the covenants. Jesus inaugurates, brings in this new covenant when he's sitting with his disciples and he institutes the Lord's Supper In Matthew chapter 26, verse 27 through 28, listen to the words of our Savior. He says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You want to know the new covenant in a nutshell? The new covenant is this. The blood of Jesus poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's the new covenant. That's the covenant we have now. This is what we need. This is what fixes everything. See, the Mosaic covenant was established so that God's people might have a relationship with him that's possible, that's workable. All it revealed was that, God's, that these people, all people, are so sinful, we cannot possibly hope to live in a relationship with God without being judged, without being destroyed. We needed someone on our behalf that could be faithful that could live up to all of the stipulations of the Old Covenant. You see, the Old Mosaic Covenant is not done away with. It's not gone. The requirements of God's law are still in place. But Jesus came to earth. This is why we celebrate Advent. This is what we're talking about with this Advent and the coming of Christ. The good news of the coming of Jesus to this earth is that he came as a man and fulfilled all the law of God. Where you failed, he succeeded. But in Christ, there's more. We, we see all of this that he's done. If we turn back to Romans, now at chapter 8, after Paul is at his wit's end about needing to be delivered from this body of death, there's this great news in verse 1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done But the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It is through Christ that the law is fulfilled. Every T crossed, every I dotted, all of it, Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. He is the one man that has ever lived that can possibly live in a relationship with his Father. And that's great. We still have a problem, though, the problem of our guilt as we stand before God. The law has been fulfilled, but what about us? We still stand before God as sinners. That's why Christ was not only the perfect Son of God that lived in perfect obedience to him, he was the perfect sacrifice to be given on our behalf. We see that fulfilled as well. His death, not only it paid for our sin as we stand before God so that this whole system of sacrifices, that of bringing animals to the temple is obsolete now. It no, is no longer needed because there has been one perfect lamb brought before God and sacrificed and that blood that is spilt that he passed to his disciples at the table and said, this is the blood of my covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. We see that Jesus' death was the perfect atoning death, the only death that ever needed to happen to pay for all sin, not just in Jesus' day, not just in the future and now. This was the death that paid for all the sin of all the sin that ever came before Jesus was even born. His one perfect death. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14 when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Only one sacrifice is needed because the sacrifice in this instance is the absolute perfect lamb of God. In the same way that when an Israelite would bring an animal, goat, bull, sheep, whatever it would be, to the temple to be sacrificed and for its blood to be spilled, and they would see that, and they would see the blood of the animal on the ground and thrown against the altar, that animal put upon the altar, whatever kind of sacrifice it was, the thought that should be running through their mind when they see that is, that should be me. That should be my blood that's spilt. That animal didn't do anything wrong. I did something wrong. I'm the one that stands guilty before God. It is in the same way that when we see Jesus upon the cross, nailed to it, bleeding and beaten and dying, we look at the cross and we say, that should be me up there. My sin is what put that man there. He lived a life of obedience to the law. I'm the one that broke the law. He didn't deserve that death. I deserve that death. But it is his blood that is being poured out that allows you to be forgiven for your sin before a holy God. That is what is available to you in this new covenant. And so the question that you should naturally have is, how do I get in on that? 
How do I become part of this new covenant? How does this get applied to me? Because, right, Jesus died a long time ago. How am I supposed to do this? How is this supposed to be for me? Well, what we saw in Romans 8.1 was that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How is this a covenant applied to you? You need to be in Christ. You need to be united to Christ. Let me just ask you a question. Who is your faith in? If you have a relationship with God that is built upon a system of exchange, one that requires you to live in a certain way and in return God blesses you, or you do the absolute best that you can and then God will follow up, or you are doing everything that you can to live a pleasing life to God so that this crisis that you are in will pass. If that's the way you approach a relationship with God, your faith is in yourself. And if you haven't realized it yet, you will very soon. You're going to keep disappointing yourself. You're going to keep failing. You're not going to be able to do it. But Scripture tells us that if we put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ that we can be saved from our sin. He, requi- he accomplished all of the required obedience on your behalf. You don't have to worry about that anymore. And he died in your place as a sacrifice to pay for your sin. You do not have to fear God's judgment anymore. If you would but put your faith in that. In the same way that God is the one who made the covenant with Abraham, he had but to receive the promise. God is the one making this covenant with you if you would but receive the promise of salvation through Christ. And so I just want to offer that to you today. Do you need to receive that promise? Do you need to stop trusting in yourself and start trusting in Jesus to be the man that you need to be, to be the woman that you need to be, to pay for your sin? That's available to you. If you would but confess your sins Repent from them and trust in Christ. And then follow through with that in baptism as a Christian. You can do that today. I would just invite you to come and talk to me at the end of service. Talk to Tim. Fill out the card in your bulletin. Drop it in one of the boxes on your way out. Don't let this go. If you need to be forgiven for your sin, that forgiveness is offered to you. So we'll talk about that. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Christ, for bringing the new covenant that we needed, the covenant that is in his blood that we can trust in, not in the the blood of bulls and goats. Father, that we have a better Savior, that as we saw through the old covenant, that we are completely unable to, to fulfill any of the requirements that you would put on us. Lord, we are completely unable to fulfill our own expectations. But you in your mercy sent your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that if there are those who are here today that have been trusting in themselves and are on that spiraling wheel of destruction, that Lord, that they would lose themselves and gain Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.